Okay, it's Saturday, May 17th, 2014, and this is Solder Smoke 160 Special 4-Day in May edition. Thanks very much to Bob Crane, our correspondent in Dayton, who has brought us a really excellent series of interviews this year, as he does every year. Really grateful to Bob for getting out there with the microphone and interrupting his FDIM experience to, to bring us the thoughts and words of some of the luminaries who uh, graced the halls there at uh, Dayton, Ohio. Once again, I'm sorry I can't be there, but couldn't be there, but uh, Bob is there representing Solder Smoke. We're going to kick off with uh, a really, really nice interview with um, uh, George Dobbs, G3RJV. Okay, this is George Dobbs speaking from Dayton. It's been a, well, a bit of a difficult Dayton uh, this time. We, uh, we had fun and games with the journey and fun and games with our baggage as well. We, uh, we flew from England to be grounded at O'Hare, spent the night sleeping on the floor there, went on the following day, and here I am now, four days into our trip, and I've not seen my bags yet, so, uh, so we're living in hopes that they may arrive. Sadly, they contain some of the stuff we were hoping to put upon our booth. But we did have a good day today as well, because I did my little forum on the regions, uh, I know that Bill isn't awfully fond of them, but uh, there was uh, approximately 300 in the hall, all rooting and cheering at the regen. And uh, I went through a few of the ideas I've used in the past, and, uh, and we had some fun. I'm pointing people towards trying to have a go at this, this singular type of radio. And uh, do you have any comments for people who might want to build a regen? Uh, yeah, there are plenty of circuits about. My favourite is the Q-multiplier type of circuit, but uh, there's nothing wrong with building an old-fashioned Armstrong type of circuit, and there are a lot of those about. And uh, the secret in a way... Ah, there we are. Uh, the secret is that you've got an oscillator which you're trying to control, and that oscillator de detects and uh, it's up to the operator's skill to either make it uh, just at the point where it's going into oscillation or at the point where it's in there. If it's just at the point before, that's suitable for AM. If it's started to oscillate, but only just, that's suitable, that's suitable for Morse and, and uh, SSB. There's a website, as I was told about, uh, it's called Regens RX. Regens RX. Having said that, I've never seen the website, but, but it was one that was pointed out. But there's still a lot of interest. They're very simple, and for what they contain, they're, they're, they're great fun, really. And I believe they were used for communication or reception during the Second World War by people in POW camps. Indeed they were, although I'm not an expert on that, but, but they were obvious choices to use. In fact, they were still being used in main sort of armory stuff as well. There were several uh, radios that were still in use in, wo in World War II that were regens. Okay. Uh, do you have any uh, words of uh, uh, advice for people who might want to build a regen to be patient or find... Well, the thing about it is we've come a long way from that sort of idea that as a receiver, it's a strict analog device. There aren't any buttons to press. It's not a question of anything being preset. Every control you operate yourself, and every control affects every other. So it's a consistent retuning and readjusting the whole time. Great fun. And people these days never experience that. You know, they just expect to be able to press a button or a series of buttons, and it'd be right for first time but when you're in charge and in a regen you are in charge well you know it's a completely different game it's a game of skill and no menus and no menus no 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 well there we are a certain person on this uh, show once said menus are for can't remember what uh, Menus are for restaurants. Oh, restaurants. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and there's certainly none on a regenerative receiver. <laughs> Thank you, George. Yeah. <laughs> Menus are for restaurants. Who said that? <laughs> Where did that come from? Well, listen, you know, George 
George is making me rethink my long-standing opposition to regenerative receivers. I, uh, you know, I find myself tempted. I find myself lured in. As a matter of fact, I, I think I mentioned I have sitting here in the shack a really old uh, homebrew regen that I picked up at the Handfast out there at the um, at the racetrack outside London, and it's sitting here. And it, it, I, I, every once in a while, I think I'm going to sell it or take it to a ham fest but I I don't and so it, it seems that I'm kind of fated destined to, to build to build a regen you know I gotta I have to disagree though with Bob there I don't, I don't think a regen would be the best radio for a POW camp I don't know I think that uh, once it starts oscillating that that would be a that would be a bad thing <laughs> I, I think he was thinking of maybe foxhole radios or crystal radios or something without a an oscillator in it but uh Great interview. George, I'm really sorry you had a tough time with the trip, but uh, glad you got to Dayton, and I, I'm going to be searching the internet looking for a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, an MP3 file or a WAV file of your presentation. I hope we can find it, but, uh, but uh, great, and uh, thanks very much, Bob, for doing the wonderful interview with, uh, with George. There's the mic. Okay. I'm Gary Breed, <coughs> K9AY. And your talk was? And I talked about... What goes into those receive in and out jacks that you find on the back of your radio? And so why do I care what goes in there? Well, one would care because that's the access point to connect uh, external receiving only antennas, which certainly will improve your hearing in many cases over your transmit antenna, listening on your transmit antenna. And the other, the other main reason is that's where you can connect accessories such as preamplifiers, filters, attenuators, uh, in addition to those external antennas. So what kind of advantage might an external antenna give me? Well, many hams don't have a, a highly directive antenna, particularly on the low bands where Virtually all hams have something simple like a dipole or vertical. And those don't give you too much discrimination to reject signals and noise from the unwanted directions. And in order to uh, pull some signal out of the noise in the QRM, you're much better off if you have a directive antenna. Uh, some of the common ones are beverages, and then there's a number of small loops that are quite popular and with those connected you can hear much better because they reject noise and interference from your unwanted directions very useful might there be a polarization effect too polarization works if your primary antenna is horizontally polarized virtually all of the receive only antennas uh, sort of by choice and by design they're vertically polarized because that that is most effective on particularly on the lower bands um, so you'll get the polarization change versus a horizontal transmit antenna that might be your your second choice for listening on and how much of a gain might I get by doing that in terms of rejection of noise uh, the rejection would depend on the complexity of the antenna um, you know, a thousand foot long beverage antenna will have quite dramatic rejection off the sides and if properly terminated off the back. I mean, in ex excess of 20, maybe even as much as 30 or more dB in certain directions. That's the maximum, very effective. And the smaller antennas, these, uh, you know, the flag, the pennant, the K9AY loop, those all have a much broader pattern and will give you certainly some advantage, but maybe not as dramatic as you'd get from a much larger uh, beverage antenna or an array of smaller antennas. Okay. And are there any references you'd recommend that I could read? The primary references are, there are two of them. One is the ARRL antenna book. Uh, it's full of good information. And the second one is low band DXing by uh, a John ON4UN. 
I'd say his last name, but I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Neither am I. <laughs> I'm not real good with uh, Flemish names. <laughs> but those are the two primary references. There, there's also uh, the uh, top band reflector on the Internet, which is accessible through contesting.com website. And that's a good discussion group for low band and the low band places are where receive antennas are discussed the most because that's where they're used the most. Okay. Is this available on only high-end equipment or does other equipment have it or is it pretty standard these days? Um, I'm not aware of all of them but uh, there are some of the let's say the lowest budget ham transceivers that that do not have the receive antenna capability built into them and they may require possibly an external box or or modification but most of the mid-level and higher all include uh, jacks for an external antenna these days it, they've become hams have become much more aware of them over the past 10-15 years as the low bands have gotten more popular because of uh, Loran being phased out and new allocations given uh, worldwide to other countries that had very little or even no access to the 160 meter band. And we've had 80 meter band readjustment here that has, I think, has encouraged more activity. I noticed that even something like a K2 has an external antenna or a secondary antenna. Yeah, the K2 has an external antenna jack, but that is part of the 160 meter module that that is an option for the K2 but but they were thoughtful enough to not only add that band but put that receive capability that's commonly used on that band wonderful do you have any other comments You're having a good time here? Uh, I'm having a wonderful time here at FDIM and the Hamvention and uh, like I said the the bottom line of the talk I gave is that if you can hear better, you will work more stations, whether you're QRP or not. Well, we QRPers need all we can get, right? <laughs> yes, we do. Thank you. You bet. Glad to, glad to contribute. All right. Thanks very much, Gary. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking along the same lines. You know, I'm my antenna project that I've been talking about is uh, putting up a um, kind of a, a directional, simple, lightweight wire. Uh, two-element beam. I had been thinking about the hex beam, but lately I've been leaning towards uh, a monoband Moxon, maybe for 17. Some of them are really simple. And you know, when you think about it, you put up a two-element beam, the gain over a dipole max is going to be, around, what, around 3 dB, about half an S unit. So um, that's not really such a big deal on the transmit side. I guess that the, the advantage, though, is front-to-back and uh, as Gary said, if you can if you can hear him better, if you can knock down some of that noise, um, that that's a good thing. So uh, also, I, I I ran into I talked to a guy yesterday on 17 meters who was using an inside the house uh, two foot loop, and he was quite strong with 100 watts going into the loop. I was quite intrigued, quite suspicious, frankly. I mean, I'm not suspicious of what he was telling me, but I really just don't don't get the um, the theory of uh, of how that works and how you could get a really effective radiation on a uh, on a loop uh, that's small. So uh, I have to look into that. Anyway, thanks very much for uh, for that, Gary. Very interesting, and uh, and uh, thanks also to Bob for for doing the interview. Um, okay, let's see who's next. Hi, my name is Chris Testa, KD2BMH, and I came here to Hamvention to present a project I've been working on called the White Box. The goal is to mix a smartphone and an HT into something new that we call the HT of the future. And uh, what frequency range do you cover? We're, it, the radio will be able to cover 50 megahertz to 1,000 megahertz with 1 megahertz of bandwidth. Whoa, that's pretty impressive. And, uh, uh, and I can use my, my uh, phone for this? 
my smartphone for this, or well, I have to put it into an HT, or is it a separate piece of equipment? So the the idea is that it's kind of like a new smartphone. It has a touch screen. It has an application processor like your iPhone or your Android phone. We, we would like it to run Android. But instead of having a Qualcomm Gobi modem that connects to the 4G LTE network, I'm working on a baseband modem that is more narrow bandwidth that we could amplify to higher power levels and use amateur modes on it. Wow, and what was this going to uh, cost me in terms of cash? I don't have a great answer for that yet because I'm still in the prototype stage. Uh, I mean, less than a smartphone, but uh, it won't be as it won't be as expensive as like an iPhone. I think uh, it, it depends on kind of the specs, and I'm still working out exactly what it would be. To give to give an example, you know, when I'm making a prototype, to make a prototype of one could cost a thousand, and then when I make 10, it could it costs 500, and then when I make 100, it could cost you know 200, and then I make a th you know so the more I make, the the cheaper it gets, and actually the smaller I can make it because if I can do a build big build, then I can use a many layer circuit board and really shrink down the size of the components. Sort of like what I get inside that iPhone. Yeah, exactly. And at this conference, uh, I have a an example of a, you know, I've ripped apart every smartphone that I could get my grubby hands on. And probably the pinnacle is the iPhone. And when you rip it open and you see how small the motherboard is, it's, it's really incredible. And all the space that they shrunk down on the side of the motherboard, they put into a bigger battery. And that's why your, you know, your Apple iPhone products always are like the longest lasting battery ones. Uh, it looks like that, that uh, motherboard's a, a little bit bigger than my thumb. Yeah, it's it's a, uh, it is. It's it's probably two thumbs put together, and and that's it. And it has two complete computers on it. There's the application processor, which is the part that you interact with and is running, uh, you know, iOS or Android. And then there's the baseband modem. I'm gonna repeat it myself there. Well, that's okay. Um, can I update uh, the uh, the device you're have you're building? Okay, I, I don't know what to call it. Yeah. So so the so the baseband modem is architected like a software-defined radio. So it's software-defined. It's, it's not a direct conversion software-defined radio, but I use a chip inside of it called an analog quadrature modulator. And what this chip lets you do is it lets you work in the same sort of math that you do with software-defined radio, exactly the same. But then there's still analog components that are doing your typical mixing, and up conversion and stuff like that. So it's kind of like a hybrid architecture. Can I uh, take soldering iron to this or do I do this all in software? So the goal is that you can do everything in software. There is expansion so you can use you know kind of the standard um, uh, expansion buses for hardware they're called I2C and SPI and if, if you're familiar with that stuff you you will know which direction I'm going there. Um, the the part, the problem is with some of the parts. One of the one of the chips that I'm using ha is what's called a BGA, a ball grid array, and it's very small, but it's impossible for a human being to place on the board. So some of the pieces are going to have to be pre-populated, even if you want to build one yourself. And other parts, you know, I'm using 0603 parts for the surface mount components. So it's, I mean, I've built them by hand with a hot plate at home. Uh, I think you know it's 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 a t a long process to do it, but it's it's rewarding and possible. So you know don't don't uh, don't shy away from trying that crazy hardware project because I'm a testament that you can do it. Marvelous! Sounds like this is um, going to be the future. Well, to, in some ways, yes. Yeah, I I hope so. I mean, I. I think a lot, a lot of people come up to me at Hamvention and, and they say, this is what we've been waiting for. Why don't we have an Android-based HT? Like, where has this been? And I think for the youth, a lot of people, you know, they, they look at a, an amateur radio and they, don't, they see a bunch of knobs and they don't see something that looks compelling for them to learn about. But if they had a pan adapter built into their, you know, touchscreen and they could just swipe across and see the spectrum... I think that that's going to excite a lot of younger folks to get into amateur radio.
Yeah, there does seem to be kind of a bifurcation of the community. There are people who are, who are comfortable with software and computers, and there are people who are comfortable with hardware. And right. other people comfortable with nothing, none of those. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, for for me, when I was uh, younger, you know, it was very hard to, to convince my mom to buy me a soldering iron and let me sit around and, you know, melt stuff on the kitchen table. And she she finally let me get a book on C programming, and I, you know, became a software engineer. But as I got older, I realized that my passion really is for designing hardware and software and kind of that intersection where they come together so you know this is kind of living my childhood dream of getting to build my like dick tracy watch or whatever <laughs> sounds like you're having fun doing this yeah that it's what i've always wanted to do it seems what i've meant to be doing so okay if i wanted to find out more about it would i go to a website or uh, order a book or what yeah so i have a website uh it's called it's at http colon slash slash radio dot testa .co. And uh, there's also a Facebook page for the White Box Project that you could like and follow there. And also, I'm, I'm very connected with the Tapper community. So Tapper is a group of hams that are really focused on pushing forward software-defined radio and, and pushing the boundaries. And they've been really helpful for me on you know getting the right people and access to the right equipment to build this. Okay, what's Tapper stand for? I don't remember. It's the Tucson Amateur Packet Radio Group, and they were uh, they were there at the beginning when APRS standard was put together, and they kind of like housed that, and you know they they work on something called the HPSDR project, the High Performance Software Defined Radio, uh, that maybe you've heard of before, and yeah, so they're that's what their group does. And they've expanded a lot because I hadn't seen them much in the past. Yeah, I think, well, so they're, they've been doing digital radio and packet radio since I think they started in 1982, which is three years before I was born. And, uh, and so now that software radio is becoming more and more popular, this is the crew that has been focusing on that for, you know, 10 years. And so they really are, you know, the experts all kind of uh, grouped together. And it's, it's great. They have a conference every year called the Tapper Digital Communication Conference. This year it's being held in Atlanta in September. And there's always really great talks. A lot of software radios that, uh, that you've maybe bought at Hamvention or other places were first introduced at a Tapper DCC. Wow, sounds like something that I want to learn more about. Yeah, go check them out too. I think it's just tapper.org. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, wow. Thanks, Chris. It, wow. <laughs> you know, I, as I was listening to Chris talk there, I was over at the workbench, and I had in my hands a Heathkit HW101, and I was thinking that I, I am experiencing simultaneously two real extremes in technology. That HW101, it has knobs. It has no menus. <laughs> All the parts can be placed in there. By, by a human hand and so what Christus was describing is so far more advanced and I find but I found myself kind of um, in this in a few minutes in the space of a few minutes looks George Dobbs is I, I find myself compelled to build a, a regen from the 1930s and here Chris has me kind of thinking that yeah, I really should get a little bit more involved in in microprocessors and uh, and uh, and menu uh, driven devices and things like that. Very interesting. You know, I, you know, I, I do have a smartphone, so I'm not completely disconnected from what Chris was talking about. I do have a smartphone and I use it. I listen to uh, to podcasts on it. I listen to other people's podcasts. A lot of good stuff out there, guys. And uh, Chris, very interesting. And thanks for for sharing that with us. I'm going to have to study up on some of this stuff. I don't know if I'm going to get fully into it. It may be. Uh, I may be just. Uh, I may be be closer to the world of the HW101 but uh, but thanks for sharing your ideas and, and good luck and uh, I'm sure you're going to do some really interesting stuff and uh, again thanks Bob for, for uh, recording that for us okay alright Mr. Crane who's up next okay uh, my name is Harold Smith my call is KE6TI and uh, I gave a talk this morning at FDIM about homebrewing but specifically about building um I talked about various techniques for building, such as 
printed circuits and Manhattan and perf board and ugly style. And I had some tips for builders like winding toroids and soldering and scrounging cabinets and mounting parts and such. And taking careful notes? And taking careful notes. I definitely, I wanted to end with that because I wanted people to remember that. So you take notes about what you didn't work and what did work? Take notes about everything. Um, the more information that goes into that notebook, the less you're going to have to try and find later. Uh, you know, unless of course you lose the notebook. But, uh, you know, ideally you you keep track of the notebook and then all your information's in one place. Um, that's that's the idea. It always helps to come back later and go, oh, that's why I did that, right? Exactly. You know, it's, how did, you know, what did I do here? Why is this one different from this one? You know, and not only have the notebooks, but of course I have the two two circuits marked with their, you know, references to, this, to the notebook. Um, you know, this one says book five, page 33. That's how I mark it. It would be B5P33. Well, on the circuit board? On the circuit board. Ah. Just written on the circuit board in a non-fading ink. And so I would know to go book, you know, notebook number five, page 33, and there's that circuit. And this one's, you know, book three, page 185. And, you know, I go to, go to there and I can compare them. Uh, well, this one's, you know... Bias. This one's running a little bit hotter. This one's biased a little bit higher. This one's whatever. You know, I can see what the differences are, or whatever. Um, you know, I just I keep notes on everything now as carefully as I can. How about cabinets? Where do you get a cabinet the right size? <laughs> well, what I was saying today is cabinets are. You can buy cabinets new, or you can uh, you can use various tins you know, from an Altoids tin on up, or what I like to do is I recycle cabinets from surplus equipment, uh, you know, the uh, computer and medical and industrial industries, or whatever industries, uh, generate a lot of instruments that are now obsolete, and they end up in surplus dealers, or they end up in flea markets, and uh, i buy them and recycle the cabinet um, I'll recycle as much as I can I don't just recycle the cabinets but uh, the cabinets are an especial prize if you if you get a nice cabinet and a lot of industrial type electronics comes in very nice cabinets so you, know, you can get nice cabinets relatively cheaply especially if they know it's a you know you're looking at it as a cabinet I ha actually had a guy in the flea market at Dayton I want to say about uh, four or five years ago, and I was I, there was some piece of something or other there. It was some medical thing. And it was sitting there, and I picked it up, and I was looking at it. And the guy comes over and says, "Let you have it for a hundred bucks." And I said, um, "I'm just looking at it as a box. It's just a box to me." And he says, "Oh, okay. Well, how much would you give me?" And I said, "Well, how about three bucks?" And he said, "Sold." <laughs> From 100 to I mean, three. he didn't want to take it home. You know, he thought, well, maybe this guy knows what it is and he can use it. But I'm sure I was the only guy that looked at it the whole the whole weekend. And three bucks was better than nothing, and he didn't have to take it home. So, you know, and then I took it home and I pulled the guts out of it. I don't know what was in it, uh, but usually there's something useful. I mean, usually there's a power transformer in almost any piece of equipment. There's always some connectors, not necessarily useful ones, but usually, you know, uh, there's some something you can use, and there's you may be able to get parts off the PC board, and then the cabinet itself. You can clean the cabinet up, repaint it if it needs it. Sometimes I'll replace the panels if they've got a lot of holes in them or the the holes aren't in the right place. I'll I'll get a piece of sheet metal or a piece of PC board and replace the panel or cover the holes in the panel but it's not hard to recycle a cabinet and they make for very nice looking homebrew radios usually very sturdy yeah they're very sturdy they give good good protection for the equipment inside they make a good one is also gives you easy access to the uh, 
to the equipment inside, to the to the parts inside. You know, if you've got a lid that slides off or or lifts off or something, as opposed to you know a soldered closed tin or something where you you know um, the access is nice and it's nice when you're building it up. You know, sometimes you can actually build it on a base plate and then just sort of assemble the cabinet around it. Well, that'd be handy. Yeah, I mean it's. It, of course, you have to find the right cabinet. I mean, that's just luck. What you find in the, you know, what you find in a flea market. Um, I don't, I don't think I've bought any cabinets other than in flea markets in many, many years now. Um, I used to occasionally buy them from surplus dealers. Back when there were actually surplus dealers that had stores. <laughs> I don't know that I, you know, where I live, there aren't any that I know of that, that sell that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, occasionally I'll go to a flea market and there'll be a guy there who'll have a big pile of old equipment. Just, you know, most of it's, I wouldn't even know what it was. You know, especially you get old medical equipment or old uh, uh, nuclear equipment, you know, stuff like that. You know, I had several, in the talk, I had the names of several pieces of equipment that I had gotten. One of them was a single-channel electroglottograph. What's a single-channel electroglottograph? Or even a multi-channel electroglottograph? (laughs) I have no idea what it is or was. Right now, it's just an empty box that says single-channel electroglottograph on the panel. But, um, you know, it was cheap. I don't pay more than... Unless it's a super, super nice cabinet, I never go above $5 for one of these old instruments. Um... But, you know, I can usually find them for that. Um, maybe not at the next ham fest, but, you know, I'll find them. And I keep my eyes out for them. You know, that's... I don't come to Dayton with a shopping list, generally. I don't come here because I'm looking for a specific... Occasionally I'll be looking for something specific, but generally I'm just looking to keep my junk box filled. And one of the things that I've found that I go through are cabinets. Uh, if I build a radio, I use a cabinet. You know. And I like to have a variety of sizes and shapes because that makes it easier to get the right cabinet for the radio. So, you know, that's one of the things I buy when I come here. Okay. Is your station pretty much homebrew then? Um, I was thinking about this when I was working up the the uh, bio for the for the presentation today my shack has I think currently there are six radios in there the only equipment in the shack that is not that I didn't build myself there's one power supply there's one an old uh, radio shack DSP there is a table lamp and I've got a couple of keys um, I forgot to mention those when I was putting them on the thing. There's a couple of uh, straight keys. Well, a straight key and a paddle. And everything else there, all the radios, the uh, SWR bridge, the transmatch, um, some switching equipment is all homebrew. There are, there, are no radi- there are no commercial radios. There haven't been any commercially built radios in my shack for quite a few years. A great thrill to tell people home it's all homebrew. It is. It's you know when I got into radio in high school, it was just magical. You know, I could get on the air I mean I could talk to people around the world, you know, and it was it was magical. And I at the same time I got into building equipment. But once I started getting, you know, nice equipment, once I got some money and I could buy commercial gear, then I did that, you know. And I, I would, I kept on building. I'd build a radio, and I'd put it on the air and say, "Yeah, it works." And then I'd put it on the shelf. And the, what stayed on the table on the on the Radio Shack was the commercial radio, the commercial rig. And at some point, it was at least ten years ago. Um, I was sitting there, and I got on the air, and I called a couple guys, and I chatted with a couple guys, and I turned the radio off, and it's like. What happened? You know, this used to be a lot of fun. Now it's like making a phone call to a stranger. You know? And 
it just wasn't, the thrill wasn't there anymore. And I got thinking about it and said, well, what is fun? Well, it's fun putting my own, you know, the stuff I built on the air. So I thought, well, let's do that. I sold the, I had an HF, you know, a standard 100-watt synthesized HF transceiver, and I sold it. And I put a homebrew radio in, in its place. It was the, the only one I had at the time that was fully finished and still functional. It was a 40-meter CW radio, and I put that on there, and all of a sudden it was fun again. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's homebrew, and, and okay, it's, it's, it was a QRP rig, so I didn't, you know, I wasn't breaking pileups anymore. Not that I was ever even trying to, you know, that hard to break pileups, but it was, it was just fun. I get on the air and I could talk to people, and I had something to talk about, you know, because the rig here is homebrew. Really? You mean like a Heath kit? Well, no, I, I built this myself. Really? You know, and people would wanted to know about it. It was, it was not just the fun of building my own radio, but it was something to converse about. It was something that we were both interested in. Not, not you know, not everybody was, but. It was something, oh man, I've always wanted to do that. How hard was it? Well, so-so. You know, the first one was harder than the last one. But, you know, I've learned something from every one of them. Um, you know, so now I've got mostly monoband radios. I've got a couple of dual band radios that, you know, cover a couple of, like, uh, 40, 30 you know, things like that. Uh, most of the radios I have are still CW, primarily because the CW radios are simpler to build. But I've been building sideband radios now. Um, and, you know, some, some fairly sophisticated stuff. I mean, the, the one I, I built last spring is um, not a world beater. It's a 7-watt, 20-meter sideband radio, but it's got... Um, an RF clipper in it, for instance. So it's got, sounds a lot better than 7 watts. You know, when you listen to it, and people have commented on, really, you sure that's only 7 watts? Um, it's just fun. You know, that's why I do it, because it's fun. That's why we're all in this hobby. It's fun. It's fun. And that, for me, is what's fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Wow, you're welcome. Wow, Harold, that was wonderful. Great. I mean, that's the real spirit of home brewing there. You know, we're not going to hold that um, that store-bought appliance table lamp against you. <laughs> that was terrific. And I, I love the description of the, of the cabinets and the boxes. Yeah, you know, they become so expensive. I mean, I've been talking about my... Um, my wooden boxes for the Bidex and I was really driven to this in part because if you go on to some of the um, the catalogs, the online catalogs and look for proper metal chassis, aluminum chassis or even steel chassis like we used to use they're, they're very expensive so uh, yeah very good on um, on recycling the medical equipment and the nuclear equipment be careful there old man That's a <laughs> sounds kinda hazardous the polyglottinator. Wow, yeah, I haven't seen one of those in years. <laughs> but uh, I really like your description of the of the home brewing and the spirit and the satisfaction that comes from it and the uh, the surprise that you get from uh, from hams when you tell them you're running home brew gear. The reaction it's almost always very positive. Not always. Sometimes you you get a little bit of uh, kind of a feeling of uh, kind of insecurity and envy on the other side there. Um, but uh, most most guys, I think, react very very uh, very positively to it, and uh, fine on on all the uh, all the projects there, Harold. I really enjoyed listening to your uh, description of the projects and the satisfaction that uh, that comes from getting on the air with homebrew gear. All right, all right, okay. Uh, now I'll ask our moderator to bring in our uh, our next guest. Uh, over to you, Bob. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is David Kreit. Call is NM0S. We're here at uh, four days in May at the presentations and just concluded my presentation entitled POW 
QRP. And uh, can you give a little synopsis of uh, the talk about how people built QRP radios or receivers? Oh, yeah. Uh, presentation was on uh, improvised radios in the Philippine POW camps, uh, particularly one that was well-documented, built by a young kid from New Mexico, Russell Hutchison, uh, a radio boy who built a radio hidden in a canteen with which he was able to hear news reports from shortwave stations in America and boost the morale of the prisoners in that camp. And how did he get the parts to build that radio? Well, of course, uh, being in a prisoner of war camp, uh, you couldn't go to Radio Shack, and literally, if you were discovered in possession of these contraband parts, uh, you could be executed. So he came up with a very clever scheme. He volunteered to work in the camp machine shop repairing radios. And whenever he repaired a radio, he would, on occasion, sneak out a part, claim it was broken, and ask the guards to go to Manila and get a replacement. And over the course of months, he, one piece at a time, managed to sneak out enough components to build his radio. This he built in a canteen uh, at night uh, using a cauterization iron snuck out of the infirmary as a soldering iron and uh, used an antenna, which was a 22-gauge magnet wire braided into a clothesline so that it could not be detected. And did he have any uh, active devices, like a tube or anything like that in the radio? Well, the one tube that he had access to was a 12SK-7 that had been uh, taken from a command set in a crashed fighter plane. And uh, with that 12-volt uh, device, um, that's all it requires to build a very serviceable regenerative receiver, which could have been used to pick up the shortwave broadcasts of the era. Quite a brave guy. Uh, his story is, is just amazing, very compelling, and I'd love to tell it. Is there anything I could read on that? Um, there are a couple of books that have been published on those camps and the activities of the uh, uh, radio exper experimenters who uh, built receivers at the time. Uh, you can find those references at the uh, end of the, my paper, which is printed in the FDIM proceedings from 2014. Do you have a website or anything like that that I could look up? Nope. I'm pretty light in that area. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Very welcome. Well, shows you how much I know. There I was saying that they weren't, <laughs> that it wasn't a good idea to use regens in the POW camp. And here David comes along and shows you how wrong I can be. Um, very interesting, and uh, I, th I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm the victim of some sort of vast regen conspiracy here to pull me into, uh, into regenerative uh, receiver construction. This is very, <laughs> very intriguing, and, uh, and fine, David, on the, uh, on the use of the cauterization iron. We seem to also have kind of a, a medical equipment theme running through this, uh, this show. But uh, I, know, I know there's a second part. I think uh, there's, there's part two with David, so we'll, we'll go to that now. You're back on the air. <laughs> okay, if you want to find out more information on this topic, there are three references from which I drew for this presentation. The first is a book by Dorothy Cave, which is entitled Beyond Courage, One Regiment Against Japan. And uh, she had interviewed Russell Hutchison, uh, she being a, uh, a New Mexican historian, and got a lot of the first-hand account of uh, the events that transpired. Uh, another good re reference is Gavin Dawes' book, Prisoners of the Japanese, which gives a, a little higher-level overview of the events. And uh, the, the definitive reference uh, to talk about this particular radio is uh, the account by George Thompson entitled The Army in World War II, The Technical Series, The Signal Corps, The Outcome, uh, published by the Department of Army in 1966. Marvelous, thank you. You're very welcome. Hello, this is Craig Behrens, NM4T, also known as No Money for Toys, and the Huntsville Guy. 
I'm the guy that does the two days in Huntsville events in August and I'm currently uh, being interviewed here at four days in May 2014. Um, I've been asked to talk about what my forum today was all about which was uh, about uh, Arduinos and Rebels and and adventure you know with people uh, with QRP and basically it's talks about Buddy Pole and the Caribbean uh, de-expeditions and the camaraderie and fellowship and that you get with not just your team but with the people on St. Lucia and uh, it talks about technology like JT65 that's done with a uh, a brand new mode of modulation uh, in a Rebel which is a CW only kind of rig and uh, about how you can pull small teams together in our case four of us we call ourselves the QRP Skunk Works to do these kinds of projects in less than four months and uh, have fun with the new convergent technology that's uh, em empowering us basically to do things that shift paradigms and take us into new realms that uh, cross borders with survivalists, cross borders with the maker world, and uh, all the other traditional electronic marketplaces like medical and so forth. So that's kind of uh, a brief summary, you know, of, of what we're the mischief we're involved in right now. Okay, and the Rebel is a Tentec, uh, inexpensive. Uh, yeah. yeah. In fact, I just came from a, uh, the auditorium uh, here at Four Days in May where Tentec announced their new product, the Patriot. So now you have the Rebel, a $199 Arduino-based CW two-band uh, QRP radio, 40 and 20 meters, that uh, we've got doing JT65 and all kinds of other things that we're going to demonstrate tonight, uh, such as GPS and custom color displays and things like that built in. But now Tentec's gone and done it again. They've announced their follow-up to that, a new product, Arduino-based also, uh, does the same kind of things called the Patriot. It also does 20 and 40 QRP, um, but at this time it not only does CW, but it does the digital modes and single sideband. And the uh, hot off the press their target price for this to be in production this August or September coming is going to be $399 and uh, the thing to know about those uh, per your question is that this products made for us to either tailor it and make it our own by changing filter widths, adding iambic key software things like that or doing total functional transplants, you know, by taking the code that the Rebel comes with and overwriting that with our custom JT65 code to do complex, you know, computationally intense type uh, digital modes. So uh, the new sideband uh, rig will uh, address a much larger market with the same abilities to, to tailor and, and do design projects for yourself. And so this is a project or a device or transceiver that you can modify via software you download from various sites? Are there people writing it so that you can do this easily? Uh, yes, and that's the question to ask right now because uh, there's, for the Rebel, the CW only rig, they have a Tentech users group, a Yahoo group, uh, where people put online code to do all kinds of functions, schematics to design little daughter boards, and uh, there's a breadboard resonant uh, with the uh, chipset, Arduino chipset. And uh, of course, same applies now with the new Patriot. So you can go to the new uh, Patriot user website that's just now being open, and you can track the Patriot getting into production and going into sales over the next few months and uh, you'll see that there's a migration right away when it comes out of a lot of existing code that will be translated and shifted around so that it works in the second unit 
so that you can go right to the users group and you can buy cookbook schematics or software and uh, download it into your new rig and have it do those functions. And as an example with the Rebel, with JT65, you use the sound card in your computer and a couple cables and there is no additional hardware to do JT65 with this new design uh, that in another world would be proprietary or patentable. It's in the spirit of open architecture as is the rest of the Rebel and Patriot stuff. I would imagine this would be popular with the younger folks who are more familiar or comfortable with uh, software than hardware. Uh, absolutely, and of course with the new Patriot, having the digital modes is great, you know, not having to uh, try to do good CW, also being able to do sideband is great. But the, uh, the original Rebel for $200 is still best bargain in town. Uh, you can't believe the things you can do with that. If you're, if you're doing soda or if you're a survivalist kind of person, you know, with a Rebel for $200, you have an emergency communication unit with uh, $30 worth of parts. It gives you GPS. It gives you a display. It gives you additional functions for doing CW well, like an iambic keyer. You know, and those are the kinds of things you can cookbook in. And then the really cool thing is when you get code that is known to be good and you load it and you play with your new rig and, and do these functions, then you can get curious and you can go look at the code because you get the source code and you can say, oh, well, that's how they do this. You know, and then if there's something you don't like, you can tweak that too. That sounds like a whole new uh, frontier, shall we say, in uh, ham radio for not terribly expensive. Yes, uh, it's, it's very expensive. And to cap this off, um, you know, this is enabling technology. This is, and I don't have to predict because it just is, a paradigm shift in amateur radio that now goes into the world of the makers and the survivalists and people that do these other uh, lifestyles. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's an exciting time and you know, we, we've only begun to imagine the kinds of things we can do with this technology. So we are not technology limited. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, wow. That's, the, that's fantastic. Um, thanks very much, Craig. And the QRP Skunk Works. Yeah, that's great. Arduinos. Convergences. Crossing borders. Shifting paradigms. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I love the use of the JT65. You know, I, uh, I think I was talking about my limited adventures with that mode. Anything involving Joe Taylor. Um, and that's the JT and JT65, of course. I find uh, very, very interesting. And I, a while back, I'd built up this little um, double sideband direct conversion 30-meter rig and... Uh, managed to get the JT65 uh, software going and made, a, made quite a few contacts with it. Very interesting. And so much, so much that, uh, that Craig said there is, uh, is interesting. I, I find myself kind of closer um, to this kind of convergence of the technology than, than I was, frankly, with, uh, with, with what Chris was talking about earlier, which was quite a bit further uh, beyond me, anyway, um, and uh, I mean the use of the Arduino's. I mean, I uh, I'm not, <laughs> you know, I I struggle with this. I, I uh, I'm I'm much more of a, a hardware-defined, radio, analog, discrete component kind of guy. But I you got to recognize the um, the the convergence and the uh, and the paradigm shift that uh, that Craig is talking about, and I. Uh, Every time I think about building a, a new BIDX or, or, or the Minima, you just got to recognize that just in, in terms of the simple thing of generating the, uh, the frequency for the local oscillator, I mean, it's, it's hard to beat that uh, the uh, Arduino with an SI570 or an Arduino with a DDS chip. I mean, I, I've built VFOs, I've built VXOs, 
but they have their limitations and uh, I mean the virtue I guess there is simplicity but uh, in terms of frequency coverage and accuracy and stability and digital readout all that it's hard to beat the uh, the digital stuff and uh, very interesting about the Tentec Rebel and, and the Patriot I have to take a look at that and uh, we'll find for the uh, from sounds like a, some interesting ham radio stuff going on in Huntsville Alabama and uh, and the QRP Skunk Works. Thanks very much, Craig. Hi, I'm Bob Allison, WB1GCM, Whiskey Bravo 1 Golf Charlie Mike. I'm the senior test engineer at the ARL Laboratory. I'm actually here in Dayton, Ohio at this moment, and we're testing handheld transceivers that are VHF and UHF, your typical HT, uh, here. We have two test stations, complete with uh, power attenuators, watt meters, and spectrum analyzers. We're testing, uh, one t uh, station tests VHF side of a, of a dual bander, the other uh, the UHF side. And what we're doing is we're testing each handheld for emission quality. In other words, we're looking to see what handhelds pass, or I should say comply, to FCC emission standards, and what handhelds fail to comply to FCC emission standards. So we're actually measuring, doing the measurements live here and then reading the spectrum analyzer and grabbing measurements off the scope. For those that fail FCC emission standards, we're printing out uh, some of the data here for our own purposes. We're identifying what mo makes and models uh, fail to comply to FCC emission standards, and those makes and models will not be advertised in QST magazine. And uh, we're compiling data here for a future article in QST. And um, normally you do uh, a reviewing of all equipment, uh, HF and uh, UHF, VHF? Well, my job at the laboratory is as test engineer. I do all the testing for product review. Uh, occasionally I do get to write a product review article. There will be a few coming up this year. Uh, but there are many other authors that participate in writing and authoring the product review articles. But I do all the testing. Okay. Thank you. Okay, you're very welcome. Good work. <laughs> All right, great. Glad to see the AWRLs on the job there. Sounds very interesting. <laughs> I, I was when they when they when they, they talked about doing the on-the-spot test. I I was thinking there might be some draconian penalty imposed there. You know that the <laughs> the HT was then instantly destroyed. <laughs> no, but not extreme. I seemed very reasonable and glad to see the league is. Uh, is, is there at Dayton, and uh, thanks to everybody at AWRL and QST for all the good work that they do for for all of us. Great. Hey, uh, special thanks to uh, to our correspondent at Dayton, Bob Crane, W8SX. Thanks, Bob, for doing such a, a great job for us again this year. Very interesting interviews, and uh, I hope nobody minds my kind of sometimes tongue-in-cheek commentary here, but I liked all of them. It was really great, and it's just a good example of the kind of the... Uh, the, the breadth and diversity of technology that we're all involved in. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I was working on the HW101 here as I listened. I am thinking about doing kind of a, a, bit, a bidexification of the HW101. Uh, stay tuned. Next week will, uh, or next episode, I'm trying to get a special guest speaker to come in via Skype. And I think you guys will find that interesting. I'm trying here in 2014 to make uh, the podcast a bit less of a monologue. So I, I thank uh, Bob Crane for helping me do that by bringing all these great additional voices into the program. And uh, next time we'll have the mailbag also. But I think I'm going to dispense with that for this round and make this uh, sort of exclusively an FDIM uh, special edition. Three cheers for, uh, for Bob Crane. 7-3-D all. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported. And there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. 
put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!